0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Venita Sinha, who is um, um, a professor at the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at uh, NUS. We'll be speaking about a brand new publication called Temple Tracks, Labor, Piety, and Railway Construction in, in, in Asia. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So uh, tell us a little bit about the journey of how you how you got interested. How did you get on these tracks, so to speak, of research?
1: Yes. Hi. Thank you. May I call you, Raj. Of course. Of course. Thank you, Raj, so much for this opportunity to talk about uh, this book, which has been uh, in the making for some time, and it's it's one that I have really enjoyed uh, writing and and doing the research for. Uh, you know, my work has been uh, uh, long interested in in mapping Hindu uh, landscapes in Singapore and Malaysia. So, in many ways, diaspora and Hinduism is is not uh, a new new field for me at all, but uh, certainly looking at the historical construction of the railways in the region and kind of finding uh, linkages between railway construction and Indian labor uh, has been a a, a new uh, perspective that I have used to understand diaspora Hinduism. So uh, I became interested in this ironically uh, in June 2011, uh, precisely at the moment when the railway tracks were being removed from across the island in Singapore, so ironically, at the time when the railway tracks were being removed, uh, I became interested in this whole question of well, how were they first of all put there uh, historically, right? So, so the uh, the sort of uh, removal of the tracks made me think about you know who were these individuals who had come to build these tracks, and I see it's ironic because the people who were removing these tracks were uh, largely South Asian labor from. Uh, India from from uh you know, Nepal, from from Bangladesh, etc. And so it, it seemed to me very ironic that the people who were removing these railways were connected historically with the railway construction in the first place because their ancestors that actually laid these tracks, you know, more than hundred years ago. So, so I became interested in uh in in this uh you know uh project, which I saw as uh, kind of three entangled narratives, right? So one, it's it's about the uh, narrative of uh, railway construction. Uh, second, it's the narrative of Indian labor migration, and three, it's it's the narrative of uh, temple building or what I call religion making uh, in regions that were known as British Malaya, which refers to the contemporary countries of Singapore and, and Malaysia. So so the the intersection of these three narratives was what drew me to this project, uh, when the railways were kind of being modernized across Malaysia and being removed from Uh
0: I find this quite a fascinating uh, convergence of tracks, so to speak, not to strain the metaphor too much. But um, tell us a little bit, set the stage about um, about the diasporic situation. You know, tell us a bit about the background of what was happening at this time.
1: Right, so historically, of course, uh, Singapore and, and and Malaysia, contemporary Singapore and Malaysia were, were part of this region uh called British Malaya in the in the nineteenth century when uh you know uh, the the East India Company arrived uh in places like Penang and and Singapore and set up trading posts in these in these places. And these were sort of the beginnings of uh, if you like, the precursors of of colonial capitalism. So in Singapore, for example. Uh, Sir Stanford Raffles arrived in the year 1819. It's it's as early as that. Uh, and, you know, of course, in order to build a colony, they relied on huge numbers of imported labor. So, labor migrations began uh, almost immediately when the trading post was set up, and large numbers of Indians were brought in from, from uh, in South India and North India as well, uh, basically to Build uh, well, infrastructures in the colonies, and of course, to serve as labor in the colonial capitalist product project of of, of modernity. Uh, so, you know, Indian labor has a long presence in these regions, going back to the 1820s, 1830s, uh, and you know, some of the the earliest tracks in the in the region were laid, uh, you know, towards the end of the 19th century. But Indian labor has been in in the area since the 1830s, at least. What does the
0: book argue? What is the hopeful primary takeaway or just the
1: book? Right. So, you know, one of the the takeaways of of the book is that, uh, you know, this book is about the historical production of the railways and and the religious infrastructure in, in British Malaya. And I actually use the lens of infrastructure to understand both the railways as well as the religious landscape. And I think one of the takeaways for me is that, you know, religion making and temple building in British Malaya occurs in the shadow of colonial capitalism, right? And both of these actually happen almost concurrently because uh, the, the labor that was brought in to build the railways was also the constituency that built some of the earliest temples in the area, right? So uh, Indian laborers were brought in and, you know, like my book focuses on labor and, you know, I, my intention is to really center railway labor in the retelling of railway histories, because, you know, I argue that most uh, of the time railway laborers are not uh, remembered and their contributions are not documented or highlighted. So I consciously center the role of railway labor in producing uh, the railways. But in, in the case of British Malaya, not only did they build the railways, they also built a sacred landscape concurrently, because the the railway laborers were actually housed by the British very close to railway premises and you know the the group of laborers that I'm looking at are called the permanent way laborers these were the guys who were uh, in charge of building and laying the tracks and they would maintain the tracks on a daily basis they would walk up and down the tracks and uh, check the tracks every day and they were housed uh, in makeshift uh, very basic rudimentary housing along the railway tracks. Right. So you would have like, you know, 20 laborers living together with the supervisor along the railway tracks. And so little communities were set up all across the railways. And you know, most of the laborers came from Tamil Nadu uh, in South India. And the tunnel center saying that wherever you stay, you should always make sure that you build a temple. Right. So these laborers actually ended up building little shrines and temples for their deities that they had brought with them. Across the shores, they ended up building temples along the railway tracks. So even uh, as recently as ten years ago, if you had taken the train from Singapore to Malaysia or across Malaysia, you would find that you know many Hindu temples were actually built right alongside the railway tracks. You know, and uh, this was a, a very very uh, prominent and visible uh, feature of the railway landscape that the. Temples were embedded within railway premises, right? So I I talk about this in the book as uh, you know that that the workspaces and the living spaces of railway laborers were contiguous sites. They were almost the same sites, and so you know the temples were embedded within railway sites. So I think one of the major takeaways for me is that uh, these temples really grew under the shadow of colonial modernity, right? And not not that the uh, you know British were uh, particularly interested in the spiritual salvation of their subjects, but it was just very expedient for them to allow that so that, you know, the laborers would feel that home and they would not want to, uh, you know, talk about going back to, to India, etc. So so that's one, one big takeaway that, you know, it was precisely in the shadow of colonial modernity that a religious landscape flourished, you know,
0: well, perhaps if we make the cage sufficiently comfortable, the bird will be happy. And the birds right. will be happy. So yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Um How would you um, How would you characterize the motivation or motivations for the temple building? Would you say is it simply uh, uh, to provide a means of sort of uh, religious engagement expression, or would you say there's more behind the motivation?
1: Right. So I think uh, you know, as I said, the tunnels have a very prominent. Uh, Saying that you know wherever you live, you have to build temples, and and the the Tamil uh, labor wherever they went across the world, the Indian labor was very much in demand through the 19th century. They traveled everywhere. Uh, they were considered very cheap and docile forms of labor, so they ended up in parts of Africa. Of course, they were in the Caribbean, and you know they were in layer etc. Um, the the Tamil laborers in particular. Uh, transported their uh, deities from, from from Tamil Nadu. And of course, most of the Tamil laborers who moved out were from the lowest of the castes hierarchy. Many of them were Dalits, right? You know, what we consider the untouchable communities. And so the, the deities they brought with them were all sort of uh, deities of the popular folk Hindu traditions. These were hot gods who sat in the big, uh, you know, Hindu temples in India. These were sort of guardian deities, right? Deities who provided protection and security for their devotees. And, and, you know, the fact that these deities traveled with them to diasporic shores meant that the the, the people who were, you know, bringing that thought of them as in this, in, in, indispensable to, to their spiritual lives, but also that they needed protection in other familiar, uh, you know, terrains and harsh terrains. Uh, With with regard to railway building in particular, railway building, of course, we know everywhere was extremely dangerous and risk-laden. And, you know, these people were working in in very harsh conditions with hardly any tools and technologies. Most of the time they worked with their bare hands, literally. So I think part of the motivations for building temples was basically to seek, uh, you know, protection from the elements, from the sort of unknown uh, dangerous forces that they were surrounded by, and and of course it was a way for them to enact their devotion uh, to their to their deities, right? And so it was a way of expressing uh, piety, but it was also uh, about seeking protection. So so many of the temples along the railway tracks in Malaya were built for these guardian deities, you know, deities who actually were very marginal themselves. Uh, Within an Indian context, but but in, in British Malaya, they actually took center stage over time.
0: Oh, one gets a sense of sort of a beautiful, how to say, symbiosis, where they are doing this, um, you know, for, for the honor and the grandeur and the and the veneration and the piety towards the deity, but also in 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 hopes of seeking the protection and and you yes. know the support. Uh, yeah. The deity for for you know uh, for this perilous task, potentially perilous, often perilous task. Um, uh, who speaking of speaking of the fact that these were uh, non-romantic communities, tell us a bit about uh, the rituals or the officiation. D- were, were there officiants in the temples?
1: Yeah, so most of these temples were built by the laborers themselves. So the, the British, uh, you know, uh, supervisors of, of, of railways were uh, tolerant enough of the practices and rituals and festivals of, of the laborers. And in fact, even, even officiated at many of them. And so so the British actually allowed uh, the laborers to build these temples, but they also in fact, gave them little plots of land within railway premises to do so. Uh, so these were sort of uh, laborers were given what were called temporary occupation licenses to set up little shrines, and so uh, in these shrines they would house very rudimentary forms of of their deities. Some of them were just uh, you know either icons representing the deities. Some of them were kind of very rough uh, you know cement and brick stone built structures of of anthropomorphized versions of their deities. Um, but uh, there they they were no religious specialists, so to speak, because many of these uh, individuals were from Dalit and untouchable uh, communities themselves. And so, interestingly, the laborers uh, themselves not just built the ra- ra- uh, temples, they also functioned as, as specialists, as ritual specialists within the temple. So uh, it, it, I find this remarkable because the, these laborers who came from, from India didn't know how to build railways. They learned that on the spot neither did they know how to build temples and they learned that on the spot as well and they also learned to uh you know through through mimicry and imitation and just learning and watching how the ancestors had done it back home and watching how it was done in the temples uh, proper temples in, in in Singapore and Malaysia just learned how to do do it themselves in a sense right so some of the practices that were uh, you know performed with this, within these temples included uh things like uh, uh animal sacrifices uh, they had uh various uh, sort of uh spirit medium sessions where the deity was invoked and invited into a into a ritual specialist you know they had festivals in honor of particular deities uh and then they like I said they had the usual you know sort of uh altar at which the deity was represented and then they would offer you know everyday pujas and, and things like that. So those are recognizable. But they really followed the uh, ritual practices of folk and popular Hinduism from Kamala. That's that's what they did.
0: Are the temples still being used?
1: Yes, actually that was, you know, that's one of the fascinating uh, aspects of the of of my uh, research that you know one would expect that some of these temples which were built as long as 100 years ago, more well, than 100 years ago, would have perished. And indeed, many of them have disappeared because they were built with perishable materials. And it would be shocking to actually find uh, any remains of these temples, right? But uh, in, in my ethnographic journeys, which, which I undertook uh, on the train, that was part of my methodological choice to actually map a religious landscape while moving on the train from Singapore to Malaysia northwards. Uh, you know, I I discovered many many existing temples, and and many of these temples were built by the railway laborers themselves. So uh, I first mapped the temples from the train, and then I followed by road, and I you know used uh, particular uh, 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 coordinates to identify these temples. So just to uh, sort of cut the long story short, I found a total of ninety four still functioning railway men temples, which is what I call them because this is what uh, my interlocutors refer to as as these temples. So temples which were built by the railway laborers are called railway men temples because they were mostly been built by men. Uh, and I found 94 of these still functioning across Singapore and Malaysia. Right. So so that's that's quite a fascinating sort of uh you know uh, outcome of, of the journeys that I've undertaken. Of course the temples have been transformed uh in so many ways. Some of them have have grown really large yeah. and others have Uh, We remain small, but they have been, uh, you know, rendered permanent because they have been supported by new community of devotees. And um, what I find particularly fascinating is that, uh, you know, railways in Malaysia, of course, from Singapore, they've disappeared, as I said to you. So the railways came to Singapore in 1932 officially, and by 2011 they were gone. Uh, In Malaysia, the railways are still functioning. But they have been modernized and and uh, developed, right? So there's been tremendous change uh, that's taken place in the railway landscape. And against the backdrop of these kind of dramatic changes, it's the religious landscape that has persisted, right? So you might expect that the solidity of the of the railways, the you know the hardware would remain. But in fact, some of the uh, secret landscapes have actually outlasted and outlived the railway railway landscape so that's really fascinating
0: yeah it's absolutely fascinating given our our caricatures of of uh uh be they uh appropriate or 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 um errant our caricatures of modernity Right. right? It's fascinating that <laughs> the hardware, the, yeah. the practical hardware to get people from A to B, uh, that's out of vogue, but yeah. the ancient ritual sphere, that's still up and running. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. So these religious cultural worldviews, you know, have persisted. Of course, they've been transformed considerably, but, you know, uh, the connection to the railway remains, and people remember that as real women temples. And, you know, I spoke to Hundreds of people who, whose ancestors, fathers, great grandfathers, great grandfathers, uncles, you know, mothers have been involved in
0: construction. So, uh, yeah, your, your comment just now preempted actually uh, two of the questions that uh, I had wanted to ask. So I'll, 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 yeah. I'll, I'll ask both and you can feel free to respond as you wish. Um, one, um, who frequents these temples? Yeah. And, and two, you know, what was your research process like?
1: Right. Uh, so the temples, of course, uh, you know, many of the temples which had been founded by the railway laborers uh, have stayed within families. So, uh, you know, I, I met many uh, railway families, so to speak. Right. People who had many, many members of the family working in the railways. And uh, so entire families had been involved in putting together the temple and sustaining it. Uh, many of these temples still remain within the hands of these railway families uh, and so uh, you know they of course supported by the family but um, other temples have moved into different hands right so uh, you know they have moved into hands which have no connection with the railways at all but uh, people have wanted to uh, take over these temples and retain the railway connection and, and sustain them so they have been new uh, communities uh, of, of devotees that have, you know, taken over many of these temples and and sustained them. So um, these temples are very famous because they come with social histories and uh, you know people remember them, people talk about them. So they are frequented by uh, you know young people, by old people. Um, Malaysia and Singapore are connected by land, and so there's a great deal of of. Uh, travel that takes place across these two countries and hordes of Singaporeans, Hindus will travel to Malaysia to frequent some of these more famous real women temples because these temples are famous for two reasons at least one because they have a connection with the railway and two because they are seen to be efficacious uh, in and of themselves right so they're associated with particular mythologies, particular deities and they've acquired a kind of efficacious standing. And so people will travel. They, they become pilgrimage sites for, for many. Mm-hmm.
0: This is what I was uh, thinking in my head, that, that it's it's fascinating that a railway route becomes a, a de facto yatra. Like, this is this is now a pilgrimage route. Yes, yeah. yes. Sorry to interrupt. Please continue.
1: Oh, and, and I mean, that's a really good point. And in fact, uh, you know, that connects me to the second question uh, you had posed about what my journey was like, uh, you know, the process of doing the, the field work. Um, you know I I really had to uh, rethink some of the uh, sort of uh, foundational ways of doing ethnographic work in, in this in this project because uh you know, I had to rethink what I understand uh, by data, I had to rethink what I understand by field site. I had to rethink what is what is ethnography right because I'm an ethnographer. and in fact uh, you know when I talked about the field site I didn't think, In terms of well singapore and malaysia are my field sites my field site was actually constituted by more than a thousand kilometers of the railway tracks right essentially that became my field site because i was walking up and down those tracks i was traveling on those tracks i was driving alongside those tracks because you know that became the field site for me because i was searching for these railway men temples so you know, I've had to kind of rethink uh, what field site means for me. And, and uh, you know, part of the inspiration for this actually came from my interlocutors themselves, who also thought of the tracks in very different ways. They didn't just think of it as, you know, tracks which carry uh, the the trains, right? Uh, or, or as registers of mobility. They really thought of these tracks as enchanted spaces, right? I mean, these were animated enlivened uh, spaces for them simply because they were inhabited by their deities and by their gods. And and these guardian deities for whom these temples were built uh, are seen to be very different from the gods which sit in uh, consecrated temples, right? Because in consecrated temples, the gods are installed and occasionally they are mobile and they get taken out in processions. But uh, deities of popular uh Hindu pantheon are mobile deities. They are on the go. You know, they are they are they are, they are walking. They are uh, riding on 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 a horse, patrolling their territories, and so uh, you know these tracks really became very central for 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 me as a researcher because I thought of them as as kind of a continuous rolling uh, field site. But for my interlocutors, the they were equally important because they were seen as enchanted spaces. You know, and. Uh, uh, so so they don't they don't just think of the temples as, as enchanted. They actually thought of the hardware of the railways as also enchanted. You know, I I I begin the book uh with a uh story and 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 you know I, I describe the scene from my journeys uh on on the train in Malaysia where I had gone on a family vacation and we had stopped at this. Uh, the train had stopped at the station in the state of, of, of uh, Jogor in Malaysia, and as the train was pulling out, uh, a Hindu priest steps onto the platform carrying a tray, you know, of of uh, thali of Arti, and he was doing uh, the arti to the train that was departing, you know, uh, and and I, that was incredible, right? That the railway. Hardware itself had been, uh, recognized in very different ways by these uh laborers, right? Who didn't just think of temples as enchanted; they actually thought of the very hardware, the trains, the tracks themselves as enchanted. You know, so um, that that was a very sort of fascinating
0: uh observation. It's it's, it's utterly fascinating. You know, it seems to me that obviously, you know, as a as scholar of religion, aside from the very problematic category of religion, you know, all of our all of our conceptions are just those conceptions, and they may be useful to a certain extent, and they may not. But this 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 idea of you know, um, uh, uh, sacred versus profane, or sacred versus yes. secular, or or even the right. sense of you know the space one is in 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 a cathedral, right. you know, receiving right. communion, might be very different from the space one was in on, on the subway en route. Right. The yeah. Cathedral, and and yet, uh, time and time again, we see uh, in the Indic context that really is um, an imposition that distinction, yes. insofar yes. as as everything can be, and, and I do a fair bit of continuing studies teaching, and I I call it shaktification. Anything right. can be shaktified, right? Like we, yes. we can infuse uh, energy... Uh,
1: into it, anything. Into anything. Yeah. And,
0: and, yeah. and it, 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 it's not that, it's not that uh, we are worshipping uh, quote-unquote idols or the sentient. It's that sentients can be invited to dwell in anything. And it's utterly fascinating where yeah. we'll have... Um, I had the good fortune of going to the uh, there's a temple called the Richmond Hill Hindu Temple. It's it's a temple that is about an hour north of Toronto. Right. Um, Toronto is now currently statistically the world's most diverse city but that certainly yeah. wasn't the case in the 80s right. uh, or the 70s. Now an yeah. hour north of Toronto was far more homogenous demographically, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. Um, And yet the Tamil community as early as the 70s and the early 80s yeah. Developed, uh, uh, you know, developed um, uh, trust, uh, a board, and uh, sought out land and built this now, you know, majestic, large temple that's still yes. quite thriving. And yes. uh, uh, whether uh, Westerners or those of Indic origin enter the temple, it's often commented or experienced that when you're in there, you don't know what country you're in like right. you, yes. you 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 know you really uh, it's it it really is quite something the the preservation of the traditions and the way of being and the, the field of energy that you might find in a, yeah a temple uh, in india sri lanka etc that's right and and uh, going uh, going to this temple it's it's fascinating like one of the one of the the occasions that i tend to visit the temple for is my um my PhD topic was the Devi Mahatmya, also known as the Chandipat. It has, mm-hmm. you know, ritual life, and yes. there's an annual chanting of of, of 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 the Chandi of the entire sort of uh, subdeshi uh, around okay. the goddess festival, uh, the autumnal festival. And so, at one point, uh, they will bless, uh, you know, the the books, uh, the, the actual Chandi the actual liturgy. If anybody has, or even among the even among the attendees, they'll bring them up and have them blessed. You'll see these, these 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 priests chanting Sanskrit from, you know, as if they're vestiges from the ancient world, but they'll be using their iPads and their iPhones.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. To, 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 and they'll even um bless them because the Nchandipad the, the yeah. is on the iPad. Right. Yeah. And it's, so it's yeah. fascinating. Utterly fascinating it's, to me. I,
1: I mean I just uh you know, thank you for sharing that. It's uh, really resonates with uh, a lot of what I found in my own research, uh, but certainly in the context of this particular book as well, where my interlocutors had no no difficulty uh, making these these transitions, right? These moves which seemed to paralyze. Uh, analysts so much right but you know the binaries of sacred and profane are completely unproblematic
0: but but the problem's ours as as yeah. you know we in the scholarly mode the, yeah. the problem the, the problem yeah. occurs at the level of analysis That's not right. at the level of experience
1: and, and practice right so they had no issues i mean to me it was uh, you know uh quite a sight that the priest was actually performing arati for the engine that was driving you know going off. But then you know, subsequently when I caught up with the priest and I spoke to him, it was completely normal to him. Right? It didn't seem in any way unusual. And he explained to me that he had done that because you know the railways with were fraught with danger and he was just, you know, uh, extending the protection of the gods to the trains themselves so that they could take their passengers, you know, to a safe uh state journey. Right. So this this sort of uh, generosity of spirit if you like, right? Which uh, and a very, in- I mean, this this was a, for me a, a different way of thinking about how Hinduism can be inclusive, right? So it's not just inclusive in terms of embracing different religious cultural practices, but here, you know, the Atani universe, in a sense, was being engulfed under the protection of the guardian deities. So the deities were not just protecting their devotees or just human beings, but it also extended to a, a non-human world, if you like, right, including the world of machines and 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 trains and tracks and you know inanimate uh materiality right so that that made me think about the notion of inclusion uh in in in, in a Hindu of context and in rather different way um and so so the research journey itself was uh inflected with these kinds of experiences it was it was a, it was a, a wonderful uh, journey because uh, multiple Journeys I should say because I traveled on the train from Singapore to Malaysia on the west coast of Malaysia and the East Coast of Malaysia multiple times, right? And as I said, part of my methodology was actually uh, you know, to capture uh what I would see while I was on the train. And and so I because because I was looking for temples within railway premises and being on the train gave me proximity to railway premises. So I could see, you know, from the train where the temples were. Most of the temples were built along the railway tracks, near platforms, near housing uh, projects and things like that. So I, you know, I, I call this methodology ethnography on the move, right? That that we're actually uh it's kind of generating information and 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 data while being on the move. So so that was a very interesting part of the of the research journey. So I mean if I think in terms of methodological in- innovations, one was this idea of ethnography on the move, because I was interviewing people on the train, right? I was talking to the guards. I was talking to the train attendants. Uh, when the train stopped at platforms, I would get down and go buy a cup of tea and then talk to the station master there and then get back on the train. So this also sort of uh, went against the grain of what is considered deep, immersive fieldwork, right? And I and I talk about this idea of episodic uh, fieldwork. And, and I know that in anthropology, we tend to be somewhat skeptical of of these fleeting encounters in favor of sort of my two years of solid field work in one place. But the nature of my research uh, necessitated these kinds of uh, innovations. And, and I, I'll say that, you know, in totality, even in these episodic and uh fleeting moments were very consequential uh, for how they shaped. Uh, future research uh, journeys that I I undertook and, and and things like that.
0: Well, no, it's utterly fascinating because the the site, the quote unquote site of your research is not static,
1: right,
0: right? Exactly. The site is actually the corridor, right? And so, yeah. clear clearly, there are not only cultures in places, be they temples or or shopping centres, etc., etc. There are cultures in in sort of, um, um, of modes of connection or site, mm-hmm. or, or you know. Um, you know, pathways, you know, there yes. there are cultures along certain flights. There are cultures along certain trips. There are cultures uh, are within, you know, if you know, if I if I'm on the one of the subway lines in Toronto, it'll be a very different culture than one of the subway lines in in, yeah. in New York City. Yeah, Pal- palpable, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: A- above and above and beyond the 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 the, the, the municipal and the the, the the sort of national backdrop, there's and, and particular lines. You'll notice particular cultures based on yes. whether it, whether this goes uh, through the financial district, or through downtown, or through et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. so it is it is fascinating, but it also it just calls to mind this I mean this this idea that's difficult to wrap your mind around, which you know when you think about relativity, that really the object there, like, the person on the train is still right. Yeah, they're not moving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know you could be on a plane and you're sitting and you're dining and you're chatting and yeah. you're relaxing as if you're in a living room. So there is an experience to be had yes. in the context of that, of that, that, that movement. So it's, it's, right. it really is interesting. Um, uh, two final questions. One question is, um, what most intrigues you about this project or intrigued you? Like what, what do you find most captivating about this uh, line of research?
1: Yeah. So I think, uh for me, one of the, uh, the, the biggest sort of uh, uh, inspirations, I would say, of this research was that uh, to, to come to the realization that both the railways and the religious uh, landscapes in Singapore and Malaysia were built by the same constituency, right? It was the same group of people that built the railways and built the temples. Uh, and uh, what has been important in this book for me is is to actually think about the book as a space where historical contributions of laborers uh, in building railways and uh temples can be rendered visible and I think that's been you know an important kind of uh, analytical uh you know uh, project that you know to recognize these people as historical actors with capacities Etc uh, the other thing that I wanted to do in this book also is to talk about what I call the non-labouring lives of labor, which which I think we don't talk about enough, right? When we think of labor, we think of them as having laboring lives. But I wanted to present uh these railway laborers as having three-dimensional everyday lives, just like you and I, right? And that they they did more than just labor. Uh so, you know, one way I thought of of talking about that was to to talk about the non-labouring Lives and capacities of railway labor, and I think of temple building and religion making as one instance of this non-laboring life of labor. You know, and and I think uh, you know I, I'd like to shift the attention uh, to to that constituency uh, in talking about the histories of the railway. So much has been written about railway history, and of course, railway labor has been talked about, but mostly in the context of uh strikes and uh you know uh disciplining of labor and labor welfare, you know, how the British talk about labor, but we don't hear about, you know, what did these laborers do after office hours, right? What kind of lives did they lead? You know, what kind of families did they have? What did they do in their spare time? I, so so one one aspect of the work that I found very inspiring is is to focus on the laborers. And and uh, you know when I found uh Interesting also is that I've spoken to many of these individuals, um, you know, who are now in their seventies and eighties, right? Who were actually involved in building some of these uh, temples. Uh, what I find inspiring is the level of commitment that they continue to display towards the temples that they had built, right? Uh, it's 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 well known that uh, in Malaysia a cluster of the uh, Malaysian Indian community still lives uh, in a very impoverished state. So say economically, they have not made uh, much progress, you know, they really sort of uh, constitute part of the urban poor in cities. And, you know, they haven't kind of made the transition from being plantation labor into urban, you know, dwellers and wage earners very well. So so they live very difficult lives. And uh, one one. Uh, sort of aspect of the research which I did not anticipate when I first started this, was that when I spoke to these men who are in their 70s and you know late 60s and early 80s, uh, how much pride they took in the fact that the Indian community had built the railway infrastructure in the country, right? And they wanted to take ownership of that. Uh, and they very much uh applauded uh the fact that I was doing something to document uh the, the presence of, of of railway labor and their role in in building temples right because they really felt that the community had suffered from different kinds of erasures and silences uh etc and they felt that you know talking about their the role of the Indian labor in building, temples was one way to continue to remember the Indian community and its contributions to building Malaysia in, in the first place right so this was something that I didn't actually expect at the beginning of my research I thought it was just going to be about Temple building and 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 village making and railway reconstruction but then this connection with uh uh sort of uh nationalism and sort of the idea that uh as citizens of 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 a Malaysian state, which uh, in some ways uh, perhaps could do more to look after its its uh, you know impoverished communities, uh, it, it surfaced in in the in in the final stages of the research. And uh, the people I was talking to were very very committed to this idea that the link between uh, Indian labor and and, their, and and the railways should never be forgotten. Right, so in fact, I dedicate the book to the forgotten laborers to build Malaysia and Singapore. So, so this this I would say was an un- unanticipated uh, sort of uh, research outcome, uh, you know, which which I found very inspiring because the book then really did become about a giving voice, or at least creating a space where the voices can be heard.
0: Fascinating. Um. So perhaps final question: Is this work that you hope to continue? What what now? What next?
1: Right. So, I mean, this this work has taken me a long time to to finish. So, I'm I'm for the moment uh, uh, just enjoying having reached this point. But uh, I am working on on uh, another book project, which also deals with this uh, idea of mobility of of uh, Hindu gods and goddesses. So, I am actually uh, in the midst of doing uh, new research on what I call the uh, uh, Hindu deities on world tour. Right. Uh, so, as, as you know, Hinduism uh, gives a lot of importance to processional deities, right, who venture out from the temples uh, in order to, uh, you know, just sort of give uh, darshan to their devotees. Um, I have, in the last few, six months or so, witnessed uh, these Utsa Murtis, processional deities, crossing. Uh, national boundaries, right? So there are some very famous temples in India uh, at Tirupati, and uh, you know a couple of others in Kerala, uh, who send their processional deities to diasporic shores. So many of them arrive in Singapore and Malaysia, and they do, uh, you know, they take part in a festival here, and then from the, from here they move to other places. Like, so I'm tracking one particular. Uh, set of uh, icons that arrived from Tirupati to Singapore and then ended up in Seattle, right, at the temple there. So I'm sort of tracking the uh, transnational movement of of deities. Uh, I call this the phenomenon of globally sojourning Hindu deities. Uh, And and I talk about this as divine visits across transnational borders. Uh, So I'm interested in how these transnational visits uh, you know, entangled in spiritual and economic and commercial processes as well. And you know what you you had said earlier about the shaktification, right? Uh, so this paper really looks at the, this this idea of the making, unmaking, and the remaking of sacrality, right? So, for example, these icons when they come from India have to be desacralized, right? So you remove their energies, right? When you pack them in cargo boxes, they're transported on the plane, they come to Singapore and at the airport, they are resacralized, right? So they can be rendered uh, ready for, for worship. So I'm very interested in this process of, you know, what happens when you desacralize deities. And, you know, as I said, it's the sort of the making, unmaking and remaking of sacrality. Uh, so, so that's something I'm looking at, but also looking at the logistics of global travel and how religious, legal and political conditions govern these movements. Uh, but ultimately, I'm interested in looking at how uh, devotees negotiate notions of darshan and bhakti and shakti in these divine visitations as deities travel across transnational borders. So so that's what I'm currently working on.
0: Well, well that sounds fascinating. Well, um, uh, enjoy the fact that this book is out. And when you're good and ready and you um, have pursued this line of research and it's, it's out into the world, uh, definitely reach out and we'll cover it on the podcast
1: thank you so much Raj for this opportunity to talk about the work it's been wonderful talking to you
0: you're welcome thank you for appearing today uh, for those listening we've of course been speaking with Dr. Benita Sinha about a brand new open access book uh, the link is in the podcast notes it's Temple Tracks Labour Piety and Railway Construction in Asia um, keep well keep listening until next time and uh, perhaps consider you know the extent to which we can chapterify anything. Take care.